Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, what do I say? <laughs> Hi, welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me as always is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! And this will be part two of our episode on Passover and Easter. So... If you're interested in the stories of both of those holidays, feel free to uh, pause right now and go back and listen to part one if you haven't heard it already, um, because we're not going to recap all of that. It would take a really long time. It's a great story, yes. <laughs> but we don't tell stories very fast in these parts. No. Um, <laughs> I would say our tradition is explicitly against telling stories quickly. <laughs> yes. We don't do... I don't know. Jews don't do anything quickly. Like, you try to leave a house... At, at the end of a party. You know, after a <laughs> Jewish party. Yeah. Yeah. It's like takes 45 yes, minutes. Famously. I have relatives who are relatives who are goys. They just say, OK, we'll see you later. And they leave. And you're just like, what happened? And you go, wait, did I do something yes. wrong? <laughs> no. Um, it is true. OK. <laughs> so uh, we had gotten through to we were talking about the Virgin Mary yes. as we closed last time. Yes. And I think we need to segue into talking about how the Middle Ages sort of dealt with all of these things. And she seems like a good bridge. Yes. As you were mentioning, there's a lot of discussion about her. Yes. During the Middle Ages. Oh, gosh. So Mary is phenomenal, obviously. She is the figure in the story who is, of course, not immediately related to Passover. Passover has Miriam, who's important, mm -hmm. um, and these days does tend to get maybe her own wine glass or, you know, there are ways on the Seder plate that things have become more inclusive, right? You put, like, an orange or things yeah. like that. But generally uh, speaking, it's a... Bread. Yes. Some people do bread. Right. But then um, there's a female rabbi who actually my friend, Dr. Kate Messler, knows, um... Kate will probably be a guest on this at some point, but who said the idea that because bread is, of course, forbidden on Passover, mm -hmm. that therefore comparing sort of women or minorities to that is not great. So the orange idea, right, becomes yeah. symbolic. And of course, an orange is symbolic in many ways, the nice round sunny fruit. But it is, a, it's a male-centric holiday, right? Passover is, of course, a fairly male-centric holiday in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, we get, we get the Pharaoh's daughter at the beginning. right. But then she sort of exits the story. Right. And we don't right. get very many other women turning up. Right. Yeah, because Moses is, of course, saved, mm -hmm. right, by women and raised by women. Um, and we have, of course, the sort of the baby, right, in the rushes. Ultimately, this is essentially where the Superman story will come from. <laughs> Created, of course, by Jewish yes. creators. Okay. Right? Lots of Jewish creators in comics. So these things sneak in in various interesting ways. And, of course, Kal, I mean, L, right? Kal L, et cetera. Right. Um, L being, of course, God, for those who are listening. Elohim, for some reason, God is always plural. But that's right. Yisrael, Israel, right? That was for Jacob, right? Who fought against God when he fought the angel, struggled against the angel. Danielle, right? All of these names are mm -hmm. based. Danielle, God is our judge. Yeah. There are lots of them. Anyway. Yeah. Um, all of the, the archangels, of course, famously, right? Michael, Raphael, Uriel. <laughs> I'm trying to remember how many of these were made up by Neil Gaiman. Like, Azura Fail, probably made up. Mm. 
don't know. I don't know. The Middle Ages really came up with a lot of stuff. It's hard to make things up, but it may have been. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But we have this sense, right, of the story as being largely male. Um, and, of course, the Easter story is in a lot of ways as well, right? The apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, the Magdalene adds this great female perspective. Right. And, of course, the Virgin adds this fantastic female perspective. Um, and she is an incredibly important figure in the Middle Ages. Famously, the the Catholic view of the Virgin, um, when Protestantism is busy fighting against Catholicism, um, the big sort of slander that Protestants have to throw at um, Catholics is the extent to which the Virgin Mary as this female figure is so important. Right, as to be almost yes. a fourth attribute of God. <laughs> right. That so that idea of the importance of the Virgin Mary in Catholicism is so prevalent that when I was growing up in you know, small town Wisconsin in the nineties, I heard Protestants accuse Catholics of basically worshiping the Virgin the Virgin Mary. Yes. So like that survived for a really long time. Oh, it still survives. It is absolutely still out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, of course, the problem with the slander, besides that, you know, it's horrific to hate people in this way, is that it is, of course, sexist. It is mm-hmm. primarily sexist, <laughs> right? Because the idea is sort of, how could you feel this way about this female person, you know, character, essentially. And... We'll have probably a separate episode where we talk about sort of the Virgin and the Magdalene and what they represent, and especially mm-hmm. the Magdalene, who does really probably deserves her own episode. Yeah. Um, but the the Virgin, right, in this figure of the mother, who is also simultaneously a virgin, right? Um, you have we in the previous episode we had mentioned tropes, mm-hmm. right? You have all of these tropes, but they are complicated. Right, a virgin who has a child, a mother who outlives her son, which is of course famously the sort of most horrific thing, right, for anyone to outlive their child, and the the pieta, right, which is translates to pity, and in English used to be called a pity, except now for some reason we call it a pieta, but it means that that's what the word means. Um, I mean, it sounds a lot cooler. It does. It's an art term to use, right? The Italian or whatever. Yeah, the Michelangelo's famous statue. Yes, and which is astonishing, right? But the, it is um, most a lot of statues that I've seen were sort of, you know, they were okay, but th- that one happened to be like really surprising to see in person. Yes, yes, yeah. There are only a few things that in person live up to the hype. I mean, there are a lot of things that do, but it is definitely, it is one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that icon- that iconography, right, of the virgin holding her son, um, that shows up everywhere. It shows up, I teach, for various reasons of iconography, uh, Picasso's Guernica. <laughs> it oh. shows up in there. They're sort of, are they being protected or trampled by the bull? Anyway. Um, but that sense, yeah, the, so the virgin, right, holding her son. And... Um, there are some brilliant renditions of this. But that sensibility, right? The human sense of that cost. Because at the core of Easter, we talked about it last time as rebirth, um, resurrection, right? The salvation, the opening of heaven, 
so everlasting life that Jesus is seen hanging on the cross as the fruit of the tree of life. He is the fruit, right? The cross is the tree of life. Um, and now heaven is reopened. That's all the great, glorious religious symbolism. The great thing about the other side of it is the human aspect. And this is something that even Catholicism throughout the Middle Ages occasionally had issues with. Because the problem is that sense of the mother having lost her son, which is so extraordinary. And particularly, you think, in the Middle Ages, I think in the plague episode, we mentioned there's iconography yeah. right, of Mary's cloak protecting everybody. And this became a sort of also an important image for things like the plague, even, right? Leprosy, mm -hmm. the idea that she could protect you. Um, that sense of her sorrow is also potentially heretical. You have to be overjoyed that Jesus has died. He has to have died mm -hmm. because that is how you get salvation. So in some ways you, you can be sad, but you also shouldn't be sad. <laughs> and there's something very dangerous about this. Um, but of course, it's also the way Christianity teaches death of anyone, right? You can be sad that they've died, but you should also be glad because they've presumably gone to heaven. And this is absolutely something still with us. Right? Where someone has died and someone will say, well, I know now they're in a better place. It's a way of trying to find comfort. But of course, you're still sad. But that right. conflict of, right, this had to happen. And yet, I don't want it to have happened. Um, and that, of course, is its own sort of extraordinary aspect of the story. Um, and humanizing that moment and that sorrow. And Mary, uh, Mary's lament. Mm-hmm is becomes one of the most famous uh, moments really not just sort of in for poetry for iconography for liturgy just across the middle ages and even into the modern era right the sorrow of a mother mm -hmm. and so one of the earliest passion poems that's it's greek probably interpolated a giant section <laughs> of the Bacchae, written by Euripides, where famously, for spoiler alert for anyone who's listening who doesn't <laughs> know what happens in the Bacchae. I think if it's over a thousand years old, you don't have to give a spoiler alert. I know, but it's such a great ending <laughs> that I always enjoy when my students read it for the first time. They may have Googled it, but I think, you know, probably they come at the end mm -hmm. a bit surprised, you know. Because they, they do have to have read the whole thing. You can't just get it off of Wikipedia for my quizzes. Mm -hmm. So I think they do get a little bit, you know, <laughs> at the end. Because what happens is that the Bacchae, who is this group of women, um, they're the title, of course. And they have been sort of driven into a frenzy by Dionysus, who's also Bacchus, right? The god of wine, madness, theater, disguise, and also fertility. We're back to the sense of fertility. Mm -hmm. And essentially, this the Bacchae... Um, are reenacting a fertility festival for Dionysus, which is something that absolutely happened in the Greek world. Theater was part of the festival for Dionysus. Um, so fertility, but also obviously disguise, right? And storytelling. So again, we're sort of combining right Easter and Passover themes here. Um, and at the end, uh, Dionysus has these women give him a blood sacrifice. Usually it was animals, of course, but in this case it is not. It is the king of Thebes, 
Pentheus, who is torn apart by these women, yeah. some of whom are his aunts, and one of whom is his mother, famously. And at the end, when she comes out of the frenzy and she realizes what she's done, and on stage, you're supposed to have this sort of um, stretcher, right? A litter, mm-hmm. whatever, with all the parts of his body. And she has his head on a pike. She had thought he was a lion. And now she realizes he is not. And she has this brilliant lament. And some of it has been lost, right? Plays are fragmented. And this comes in at the very end. So this, you know, the papyri that we've got the Bacchae on, you know, this part isn't quite clear. But a large chunk of this speech has been restored from this Greek passion play. Oh. Because it was sort of clear that this part of Mary's lament was taken from the Bacchae. <laughs> wow. But it had the whole it had the whole thing. Or at least we assume it had the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So we could put in the parts between, right, the lines that we have. Mm-hmm. Right, we have sort of this one line, and then we are missing a big chunk, and we have this other line. We can fill it in. We can fill in that chunk from this poem. Um, and so not only is that a sort of brilliant moment, it's a reminder of the way in which lament, a lament is its own genre and has been for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, it might also get an episode because there's some fantastic laments. But Mary's laments specifically, first of all, the way in which they're tied to previous symbolism in some ways makes perfect sense, right? This mother, in this case, she's mistakenly participated in the death of her own son, driven by a god of fertility. There's a lot of other stuff going on here. Um, But the sense of wine, right? The sense of sort of partaking in a god, a lot of things are sort of similar. So then you move right to this passion where they've taken this lament <laughs> and popped it in there. Mary, of course, not responsible for the death of Jesus, um, but mourning it in the way any mother would. Right. Um, and the I think we said in during the plague, in addition to sort of the iconography of things like the cloak, um, hymns to Mary were a huge part of... Um, sort of trying to restrain the plague. Um, the flagellants who we mentioned um, use the Stabat Mater, which is Mary standing at the cross. It's the poem about her and her sorrow um, as their sort of one of their sort of marching prayers. Um, generally, you know, a lot of the sort of liturgy surrounding aspects of the plague, Mary and her sorrow um, is one of those things. And partly because she is an intercessor, right? Her son obviously listens to his mother. And sometimes you feel that sh- you pray to her because she will understand you. Because she was she was entirely human. Mm-hmm. She felt the sorrow of her son dying, even though she knew he had to. But she felt it in a way that only a human can, right? So you pray to her because you figure she will understand your humanity. And she will intercede with her son. Right? Um, And so the laments, some of the earliest um, plays that we have are centered around theater, of course, being my specialty, right? So this is why I bring it up. Uh, But are centered around her laments and the sense of her lament at the foot of the cross. Um, And the Magdalene is also a very important part of that. But that aspect of, of Mary's sorrow is itself it's an entire sort of genre (laughs) it Mm -hmm. is one of the most important things to come out of the story yeah the easter story it strikes me that um i went to a oh gosh what is the word 
like the priest indoctrination ceremony where they make you a priest. Oh, yes, was this um for Brendan's? No. Oh. It was, I have more than one relative who is a priest, what? which is okay. very surprising for a Jew. Because I was at his, <laughs> and then of course, I've, I've also been to an Episcopal yes. version. Yes. Sort of where you are invested. No, this was a Catholic one at a, a more, um, more evangelical uh, congregation in Ann Arbor. And during the ceremony, the candidates were anointed with oil, mm-hmm. and then... The cloth that they used to clean the oil off was given to their mothers. Yes. Which is an interesting parallel between the the priests and Jesus and the mothers and the Mm -hmm. virgin. That is absolutely what's going on there. And the priest, so this is going back sort of to the idea of performance, but during the Mass, particularly the moment of transubstantiation, where the bread and the wine are turned into the body and blood of Christ— those are seen as moments where the priest is reenacting what happened. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yes, there is absolutely supposed to be that connection. Right? Priests are supposed to try to live the way Christ did. Now, the interesting thing about this, this might bring us on to the Venerable Bede, in fact, <laughs> is that um, <laughs> this was not always the case. So... Immediately following the death of Jesus, uh, of course, we have the apostles and Mary Magdalene, the apostle to the apostles. She gives them the word that they are then supposed to spread. Um, and as Christianity grows, um, at first you have to be Jewish, right? You have, so you have to convert to Judaism, essentially, because it's a sect of Judaism. And okay. then, of course, eventually sure. that becomes not an issue Right, you can sort of become Christian directly, mm-hmm. but that I feel like it's worth noting um, for people who are not super familiar with Judaism that um, Christianity is a much more um, eschatological yes religion, and and there was a fair amount of you know historical worry about the end of the world and things like that going on. Well. When Jesus dies and says he'll return, the assumption was he meant mm-hmm. very soon, right? Um, and so different emperors, right? Famously, Nero has been assumed to be the sort of, it's not actually 666, yes. but the, the referent for that moment in the Bible. And sort of different emperors, right? There'd be a sort of terrible tyrant or something on the throne. And you'd be like, ah, this. And then, of course, the longer he didn't return, the more it became clear that Christianity couldn't be just a religion about the end times or the apocalypse. Yes. Of course, is where we get revelations, right, as a book. That being said, right, eschatology remains incredibly important, and I think that'll be part of our hell episode. Yeah. But it becomes clear Christianity has to live as a religion indefinitely. So what do you do? So the idea of him coming back, it's clearly further in the future, right? So all of these things get pushed back. Um, that being said, the, the temple is mm-hmm. destroyed, right? The, again. So certain things did happen, or were seen as proof that they had happened the way he'd sort of foretold. The temple isn't rebuilt. It still isn't. I mean, famously, the wall that's there that you visit in Jerusalem. Yes. So there were, you know, Judaism did scatter. The priests disappeared. Judaism no longer had priests. It had rabbis. This is something we also covered in part one. So the heresy that Jesus had been part of is now our official sort of take on the religion. Right. And as we said, not because of him, 
But essentially his side did win, which is to say the priests were destroyed, ultimately. Being collaborators with the Romans did not save them. And here we are, right? And Judaism, we still talk about the time of the temple when we had priests and did sacrifices, but we don't anymore. Right. I mean, like... The weird, interesting... Priest, hmm? The priestly, priestly class still sort of exists, sort of, based on who can yes, be called absolutely. up in what order for an aliyah yeah. during Cohen, your service. Levite, but mm-hmm. the yeah. less orthodox you are, I think, the less you're likely to know even what yes. class you belong to. We are sort of bot Kohen. Yes. Right? But yes, that's, you know, it, but it's symbolic now in Judaism, right? It's yeah. not quite the same. And this is the, the sort of interesting part, of course, is that Christianity splits off from Judaism fairly quickly. And it actually ends up maintaining that hierarchical order that Jesus himself seemed to be trying to destroy. So you have priests, you have a hierarchy. <laughs> meet meet right? the new boss, same as the old boss situation. Yes. To, to quote the great philosopher, the who. Yes. <laughs> um, and that's what happens, right? So, of course, the, right, the Pope, the Cardinals, all the way down. Mm-hmm. Right? This is what we got today. And they then view Jesus essentially as the first priest, first Pope, right? And so you are like him, you are reenacting what he did. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing, as I said, is that in the Middle Ages... Um, at the sort of outset of Christianity, because it's still tied to Judaism and there's still that sense of trying to sort of know priests and instead rabbis, that doesn't happen sort of immediately. And what you get are a class of men and women who want to live like the apostles, right? The idea of trying to be like Christ does not yet seem like a thing you can do mm-hmm. because you, you can't. Right. He's obviously one of a kind. But you can live like the apostles. You can join and you can live like the apostles. So you're not just joining as a follower of Christ or a believer in Christ. You are living the way they, the apostles lived. So you are, first of all, a missionary, of course. You're spreading the word. But you are also essentially just traveling. You're living in poverty. You are begging. And I suppose we can all see, right, what you get are the monks. Right. <laughs> That's where we're going. You get monks. And you slowly get orders, right? So orders of monks form. And the idea is to live like the apostles. I feel like they had a lot of discussion about how much, like, how much poverty did the apostles live in? Um, can you own things communally? Yes. Um, it, I, if you read, if you ever read through the notes to the book, The Name of the Rose, it goes into excruciating detail about a lot of these heresies, yes. which basically involved not wanting to own things, um, or, well, you know. we will probably have a separate episode on yes. um, <laughs> apostolic and monastic <laughs> trends in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Because that deserves its own episode. There's a lot. But there's a lot. What happens is the monks are the group that are trying to live like Christ. But you don't, you live like the apostles, right? Because they're about as close as you can get. But they live the way Christ told them to. So, yes, poverty. Also, of course, unmarried. Mm hmm. You don't marry, you live in poverty, you beg, you spread the word. Okay. Now, as things go along, we're going to shoot forward a few hundred years. So we're into the Middle Ages. Several, many sort of, you know. Um, and we've got some established orders. Now, one of the old ones, um, the Benedictines, are they managed to be one of the old established orders. Once you really get into the Middle Ages, they have become famous for their power, for their money, <laughs> And also in a lot of ways for their corruption and their greed. Mm-hmm. So 
Chaucer's nun is a Benedictine, mm-hmm. right? Um, you can pretty much guarantee a lot of the time if a monk is being made fun of for being corrupt, for being greedy, for eating too much and drinking too much and sleeping around with women, um, there's a sort of period of time during which you can kind of guarantee that they're making fun of the Benedictines. And lots of orders that follow are there are other old orders. Like I said, we'll talk about all of this in a separate episode, but this is one example. Um, there are then orders that basically break off and reform. So trying to get back to basics, right? Sure. Um, so we're going to reform ourselves. We really are going to live in poverty. We're going to, right? And of course, then that will slowly change <laughs> and you'll get another break off somewhere else. So for example, the Cistercians are one of the break offs eventually and they are their reform. Um, they are strict observance, which is a way of saying they really are trying to do the poverty. They really are trying to do, right, all of these things. Um, eventually, famously, we'll get the mendicant orders, like the, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, where um, St. Francis famously can't get his rule passed sort of the first time he goes. This is the story, of course, right? Um, because it's just a list of stuff that Jesus told the apostles, and they won't let it through. And the Pope at the time sort of says to the Cardinals, but how can you not allow this rule when it is literally taken from the Bible? We are saying that you cannot live the way Jesus told the apostles to live, that it's somehow heretical to try to live that way. And is that because of how badly it reflects on us? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, that being said, Francis has to modify his rule a few times before he gets it passed. If you've been to Vatican City, there's a lot. I mean, you wouldn't think of it as an impoverished place. Like the Pope, (laughs) the Pope might be driving around in like a little tiny, you know, 1957 Fiat or whatever it is he has. But, um, right. Well, this is of course the current Pope. Right. And I actually, I will take this moment to point out that the current Pope took the name Francis, Mm -hmm. which is astonishing. And when medievalists heard that that happened, I think our collective hearts skipped a beat (laughs) because the idea that what that said to people who knew Catholicism, mm-hmm. essentially, was extraordinary. Because Francis, first of all, he couldn't get his rule passed. Secondly, the only reason he managed to get a rule in the first place is because the Pope at the time liked him. Um, it's the only reason he managed to get his order off the ground. And it's the only reason he was eventually sainted, because he managed to die while that Pope was still Pope. And so then he was sainted. Um, and then, of course... It's all about who you know. <laughs> yes. Um, he's also, of course... The, um, the only person to have had stigmata, this is going to bring us full back to Easter, right? But the only person to have had stigmata, whose stigmata are actually officially sanctioned by the church. There are other people who are said to have had oh. them who have become saints, but his are the only ones that have actually been sanctioned. And the papal bull that sanctioned it was reissued fairly continuously because it was so controversial. And the reason it's so controversial is because to say that you were given the wounds of Christ... Right? So stigmata, of course, the marks of the nails, right, from Christ on the cross. Yeah. This is the ultimate meaning. It's not clear that that's always originally what that meant. Wounds that resembled Christ's wounds is always what it meant. But how specific that was is a little unclear. Mm -hmm. The early descriptions of St. Francis when he was actually just dead, right, people who knew him, said that he actually had these growths in his hands that looked like nails. Um, And it's actually quite possible that he did this to himself, which would not have been seen as in any way changing the miracle. Mm -hmm. It would have been sort of the idea that he's allowed to have these wounds, even if he does it as a sort of form of self-flagellation. The fact that he's allowed to have them is a 
commentary on how like Christ he is. Wow. That being okay. said, they're eventually sanctioned as having been miraculously bestowed upon him because he was so like Christ. He was given this sort of ultimate signifier of his mm-hmm. closeness and his likeness, his exactness to Christ. So this is a sort of famous, famous moment. And it was incredibly controversial and the bull had to keep being reissued because clearly because people sort of weren't <laughs> taking to it. Mm-hmm. And he's the only person for whom that ever happened. Wow. So again, the Pope who really believed in him and backed him up on this made a lot of this happen. Um, now, I super love St. Francis. Um, he is incredibly controversial. And for all sorts of reasons that today I think we tend to like. So his stance on poverty. Yes, he, of course he's calling out the Vatican and the Cardinals and everybody else for the way they live. Mm-hmm. That is 100% what he is doing. <laughs> um, the idea of, right, he writes famously one of the earliest poems in Italian that um, to brother, son, and sister moon, right, yeah, he sort of talks about the animals. That seems like weirdly pagan, actually. Well, But ah, it's not thought of, no. obviously. He's a saint. Like, no. yes. if he no, says it, this- it's legit. Yeah. Well, it's because it's the reminder that all of creation, God created everything. Mm -hmm. So we are the same as everything else. We are no better and no worse. The sun is our brother. The moon is our sister. Right? God created all of us. Now, this is, there are two basic ways to look at this. There are a lot more. But the summary is that Adam in the garden is given dominion over everything in the garden. So does that mean that people are more important than animals and trees that men are more important than women, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a question. It's not clear that that is what it means. A different way to look at it is that Adam is expected to help shepherd everything. That he is not told he is better than all of these things, but he is kind of responsible for them. That's obviously how Francis takes it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We are responsible for the earth. So he, he is essentially, right, today seen as a naturalist. He is, of course, deeply, deeply invested in the poor, poverty, um, leprosy, all of these things. We're going to talk more about him in the future because he'll get his own episode. We'll talk about sort of the Christmas crash and how he kind of invented a lot of these things. But for purposes of Easter, um, this element of him being seen as like Christ, the idea that a pope would take that name was a way of signaling an incredible, incredible shift, especially sort of from the previous pope. Right. Right. St. Francis did not want to be part of an official order. He created his order finally only because he wanted his ideas to be recognized. But he did not want he did not want to be part of a hierarchy. He did not really want to be a priest. He didn't want a church. They spent their first year in a pigsty. Now, if you go to that pigsty, there is a giant, incredible, beautiful, gorgeous church, Santa Maria degli Angeli, that has been built over that pigsty, which is painted with gorgeous, you know, murals and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not what he envisioned, but right. there you go. It's not a pigsty. It's like a little hut. You know, it's a little stone hut. I'm calling it a pigsty. That is, you know. Mm-hmm. But that, but that's the point, right? Um, and so this was sense, right, of Francis. And so the idea that a pope would take that name signals immediately, right? The poor, poverty, climate change. Right. Investment in the earth. We are responsible. We are shepherds for each other. We are shepherds for the earth. We are the stewards. We are responsible. We have to take care of this. Right. Um, that was a remarkable thing to signal. Uh, and he has really tried in a lot of ways to live up to it. The poverty thing, of course, is the most noticeable. 
I mean, the climate change, all of those things are noticeable. Yeah. But most popes do figure they've lived long enough and they're old enough that they at least deserve a few things here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, And he really, really doesn't sort of do that, right? I mean, of course, he's still in the Vatican. I'm not, you know, (laughs) but his sort of outward show Mm -hmm. of poverty that he has maintained is important. And his continued investment in, right, all of this, right, the poor. So there is definitely that sense, right, for Francis. And for him, that is how he viewed Christ. That's absolutely how he viewed Jesus, right? A steward of the people who went among the people, who helped lepers, sick, women, all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that element, right? And so the idea that he got stigmata of all people, and that therefore somehow God was saying, yes, you, your ideas are like Jesus's, right? Or Jesus himself would say this, your ideas are like mine, right? I grant you <laughs> that you are like me is kind of an incredible revolutionary act mm-hmm. because it sanctions this guy who is really against the hierarchy, who is not just against wealth, but basically told his, told his own followers, he gives them exactly what Jesus gave his apostles <laughs> and no more. So, um, you know, sandals and a walking stick, right? And he said, um, you, they said, what about, you know, at least like a prayer book, right? Or something. We could say the liturgy could mass, you know, you need a book. All this stuff is in a book. He said, nope, because if you have a book, then you want to stand to put it on, right? And then Mm -hmm. you need like something to keep it out of the rain. And then you want a nicer book, you have to chain it to your, no, right? No stuff. And when he dies, right, he Gives He wills his cloak away to someone before he dies, and the man ostensibly lets him keep it. I mean, it's a friend, it's a, right? Um, but lets him keep it until he is actually dead. But that way he <laughs> dies literally owning nothing. Right? And he wants his body thrown out of the hillside, which it is. But of course, then later they go get him and they build a giant church over him. <laughs> so, um, anyway. A lesson that things don't always work out the way you had planned. Right. It's the one thing outside the Vatican that the Pope owns. It's Vatican property. Oh. But so this is sort of that that element there, right? Um, the idea of sanctioning what exactly Jesus was sort of trying to do, right? Which is, which is something that, of course, people argue about all the time. But monks are the ones who sort of take that on. Slowly but surely, right, priests are discovered to be necessary because monks are so busy doing all of this other stuff, spiritual and so on, and they usually have a lot of money. There's something else Francis was again. Only the rich could sort of afford to be monks. You have to make a big dowry <laughs> payment to a monastery. Oh, that's how they got money. Yep. Okay. So if you're poor, you could be like a third order or something, but you couldn't really be a full part of the order. You probably mm-hmm. weren't educated enough, right? You did all the labor. So that's not fair, right? So priests didn't have to be as educated, didn't, sometimes we're not very well educated, right? But they're sort of discovered to be necessary. And for the first thousand years, they're allowed to marry. They're not really forced to... They have, of course, they have things they have to obey, but they're not forced to do all the things that monks are supposed to do. Monks are the ones who are supposedly living like Christ. Mm-hmm. Eventually, this becomes an issue. And this is something we'll talk about in a different episode. But the celibacy, the fact that monks do have to be celibate and are trying to live like apostles and priests aren't, this clearly starts to become a problem. You can see there might be some friction. Um, mm-hmm. And so usually, of course, the hierarchy, right, the popes, the cardinals, all the higher sort of parts of the hierarchy are generally monks who are also, of course, in orders. They are also priests. But you don't have to be both. I want to point this out. 
Right. You can be a monk and not be a priest. And of course, be a priest and not be a monk. Right. I feel like there were a couple of orders that are known to be both. Well, more generally, you have to Jesuits. Be, yeah. But maybe. Yes. You could be both. But um, but it's not it's not sort of inherent, right? And so, again, right, we'll have a whole separate episode sort of on that. But what happens is um, you hit sort of the year 1000, <laughs> and there needs to be a shakeup. And one of the things that happens, of course, is that priests, it's the said priests will not marry, right? Priests will also have to live their life like Christ. And that includes things like not marrying. Mm-hmm. And that's, so then there's a sort of generation of priests who supposedly, like, have kind of women following them around, and it's pretty clearly, like, their wives and so right that because there's a right it takes a while for priests to agree to you agree to got this. a grandfather the <laughs> ones who are already married in right because don't you well you don't exactly this is the problem and then of course you have people who just become priests who don't see mm-hmm. why that has to happen you know so it takes a while for that to really take hold but so the idea that priests don't marry the priests do live like christ all of that stuff is actually about a thousand years like that is far distant from the origins of, of Christianity, that happens in the middle of the Middle Ages. So that's actually a long time coming, that part. And meanwhile, right, people like Venerable Bede, right, we have all of our sort of monastic orders. Um, they are the ones who've always thought of themselves as mm-hmm. in the line with the apostles. So who was right. Bede? Um, Other than Venerable? Yes. So I mean, I assume he was less Venerable at some point and then became Venerable. Some are yes. born. Where does he get his yes. appellation? Some are born venerable. <laughs> um, some attain venerability. Yes. Well, I mean, essentially, right? Bede is sort of the big, <laughs> the big chief, essentially, <laughs> in England, right? You know, some people are brilliant and sort of more famous and write a lot more stuff, essentially, than other people. And so this is what he does. And so he is, of course. <laughs> Benedictine. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yes. And to be fair to the Benedictines, right? There are many great, great Benedictines, but they are also the order that, because they're of such long standing, obviously, <laughs> when you're talking about a monk who's getting drunk and doing all this stuff, you just kind of know that that's probably who they are. Mm-hmm. That's who they're supposed to be, right? That is where we're making fun. As you get far enough into sort of the late Middle Ages, you definitely will find other orders that are made fun of, right? Um, but they are kind of the original. And they are also the one, again, that people will sort of reform, right? Um, so they're like, we're going to be strict observance. We're going to go back to the real rule of St. Benedict, and we're going to follow it exactly. And, you know, we're going to have to call ourselves something else so that we distinguish ourselves from those Benedictines who are now corrupt and lax and blah, blah, blah. You know? But yeah, so Bede, of course, is absolutely Benedictine. Again, you had to be real rich to become one. Mm-hmm. Because you had to sort of give a big dowry, male or female, right? You had to pay into the monastery. Um, so this was another huge problem that people like Francis, but long before Francis, I mean, Francis is high Middle Ages, um, people have problems with the idea that you have to be rich. Because, of course, the apostles, they were supposed to give away all their money to become an apostle, <laughs> not give all their money to Jesus to become an apostle, right? So the idea that you sort of had to be rich to be something like a Benedictine, right, to be a monk, was clearly problematic. Mm-hmm. So he is one. Um, and he writes a lot of really brilliant stuff. And this is why we still care about him, essentially. Right. And so his most famous, right, the Ecclesiastical History of the English People, which is fantastic. It, of course, also raises the point, though, and this is where Easter comes in, <laughs> that for some things, he's sort of our only source. 
And so at what points do we say he just happens to be our only source, but we more or less believe what he says? Mm-hmm. Or he is our only source, and maybe what he says is not fully accurate. Right. Right. And so Easter, right, uh, E-O-S-T-R-E, usually, when you're looking these things up, is one of the things he comes up with, and he says she was a pagan goddess. A Germanic, Germanic goddess, right? Yes. That there were, there were yes, a lot of various yeah. tribes in what we now consider Germany. Yes. Yeah. They were the big pagans of the time, of course. Yeah. Um, especially if you're, right, English, or in England. He's in Northumbria. Okay. Um, which is in England. <laughs> <laughs> to this day. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, one of the things it's in come up once or twice. In Yes, you know, there are earls yeah. of it and so on in, in Shakespeare and stuff. Yeah. So the idea that, that essentially <laughs> um, the Germanic sort of, he views her as a pagan, I mean, yes, Germanic, but pagan fertility goddess. Um, and right, so spring, of course, spring is a festival of rebirth and fertility that mm-hmm. it has always been that for thousands of years, right? Whenever you have a spring, you have rebirth. That's what happens, right? right? You've got regrowth because winter, of course, is death. Everything dies. There are various legends about that, right? Persephone in the underworld or whatever it is. Um, and then why rebirth? Does someone comes back from the underworld or whatever it is? Well, that's, of course, exactly what happens in the Easter story, right? Jesus resurrects. He comes back from the underworld. It is about fertility. Um, and everlasting, everlasting mm-hmm. life, right? In the spiritual sense, right? Um, and again, sort of fertility in a spiritual religious sense, right? That now everyone is allowed into heaven and, all right, the fruit of the tree of life and all of this. So Bede has this sense of this goddess. Um, and he says, you know, her festival is in the spring and it's around the same time as Easter. And so we call it Easter. Sure. Right? Or some people call it Easter or whatever, you know, whatever. They've sort of been conflated. In and the areas. theory is that this goddess might have had chickens or eggs as part of the various animal right. emanations or yeah. d- avatars and or something. All of this is basically, basically nonsense. Okay. Most of this is 100% not true. <laughs> and the the big thing, of course... Is that there's no evidence that Easter, I'm just going to call her Easter, um, that she exists or ever existed. And there are there are certain Germanic votives that have a different name, right? They're called, sort of called the um, Austrianae. And the idea that sort of Austria and Easter might be related and mm-hmm. this and that. And the, but there's no, there's no actual evidence for Easter. Okay. As a goddess. There's no evidence for Easter as a goddess. So the question is, where did he hear this? If he didn't just make it up, if, you know, and some people certainly think he just 100% made it up. Um, but that's not necessarily true. He also may have heard something <laughs> and just sort of conflated things mm-hmm. or misunderstood things or maybe filled in gaps that he decided to assume that may or may not have been true. We don't know. But what we do know is that there has been no evidence found for a Germanic goddess like this. And... That being said, obviously, we probably owe it to Bede the fact that we that we in the English-speaking world call this Easter and not something like Pasquale or Pasqua, which is what it tends to be called in yeah. other sort of, you know, Western mm-hmm. languages. Because, of course, Paschal, the Paschal Lamb. I mean, most those derivations are all very clearly from the actual source of the mm-hmm. holiday. <laughs> so ours is possibly an actual, like, false etymology. 
right? For this goddess who may have never actually existed. Wow. Um, that's that's intense, actually. Which is sort of fun and is Yes. Now, of course, it's clearly a fertility festival on some level, as I said, right? Mm-hmm. Rebirth, regeneration, resurrection. Someone comes back from the underworld and everything grows, except in this case, spiritually, right? Everybody grows spiritually. Everybody sure. is now allowed into heaven. So that is, of course, bring on the bunnies, right? They're a great fertility <laughs> symbol. Um, but it's not clear sort of that that is, has actual pagan derivation from a, from a god or, you know, mm-hmm. anything of the sort. Um, it's more that, of course, that you look around in a lot of parts of the world. What do you get in the spring? Bunnies. They're absolutely a sign of spring infertility. Yes. And right? As are chicks. Chickens. Right? There's something. Okay. The people I know who have chickens, if you want them to lay eggs over the winter, you have to put a light in their coop because something about the length of the day tells the chicken that it's springtime and they should lay eggs. Mm-hmm. So that is another thing that happens. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you start getting yep. eggs again. Yeah. Yep. Rebirth, regrowth. I'm disappointed not to have Easter as a goddess, but I know I'm gonna keep buying chocolate eggs. I mean, obviously, (laughs) yes, there are tons of you know fertility goddesses, but there just doesn't seem to be that actual derivation. Um, That being said, for eggs, obviously, right, the Passover Seder plate, there is an egg that's supposed to be sort of burnt on one part. Right, that is symbolic of the sacrifice. Right, there's the lamb shank roasted. Right, that's supposed to be that's symbolic of the sacrifice of the lamb, and then the roasted egg that's supposed to be symbolic of sort of the sacrifices in the temple that we can't do anymore. Right, or something along those lines. Right, whichever sacrifices. Um, the sacrifices of the temple, of course, also represent the lamb, the original lamb. Right, so we have so, um, and both of those symbols, lamb, a lamb is also, of course, a symbol of new life, right? The sacrifice of the lamb, you know, um, to allow sort of death to pass over. Well, since we're circling back to the Paschal lamb and the lamb Mm -hmm. protecting people and providing salvation, we don't have a lot of time left, but let's uh, talk about blood libel, because... The dark side. We'll close with the real cheerful stuff. Yes, there are certainly parts of, you know, Jesus himself doesn't really have control over any of this And after. Much like people know. building a giant church and putting Francis in it, you know. Yes, exactly. So sometimes you don't have control over your legacy. And one of those things <laughs> that Jesus did not manage to control, of course, is the fact that the connection between Easter and Passover, of course, remains known because how could it not? Right, like liturgically, Easter is always the first Sunday after Passover. No. Isn't it? Are they no. tied that um, way? And actually the East and the West. Oh. So like Eastern Orthodox versus mm-hmm. like Catholicism and Protestantism in the West. Um, calcul- tend to calculate a lot of their holidays slightly differently. Hmm. So um, Orthodox Easter isn't the same time as Western <laughs> Easter, for example. Right. I mean... It's not that it's impossible, but they generally aren't. I don't know if they ever have, but they're they're different okay. days. Yeah, they're different weeks. Um, and sometimes they're sort of far apart and sometimes a little bit closer, depending on how you calculate it. Um, the way in which you calculate it is specific. But there, it does. they do quite frequently fall nearby each other, which is kind of interesting, actually. 
Um, and in fact, this year was right. incredibly right. perfect, right? Because Wednesday and Thursday were the satyrs. Now, technically, you know, it's a day off because Wednesday. But, <laughs> you know, it's close enough. Um, and so that that sense, right? They, they were incredibly close. Um, and the, the frequency with which they fall together is kind of intriguing. Yeah. Um, but they, they are calculated separately. That being said, of course, then uh, Pentecost, which is another holiday shared. Oh. Pentecost is the yes. day in which we get the Ten Commandments. Speaking of the Ark carried before us, which we did in the previous episode, right? Moses wandering in the desert. Um, Pentecost is, right, it's the days. You actually start to count down at the end of Passover. Well, at the end of the Seder, right? You start to count up to Pentecost. Um, mm -hmm. And Easter also, right? It's 50 days. And so Easter counts it the exact same way. The 50 days. They still call it Pentecost. Um, we frequently don't. I assume because... I don't know. I assume because not to get confused. <laughs> but it's the same day. Um, and again, the meaning has been slightly altered. After Jesus died, the apostles got back together on Pentecost. And they were visited by the Holy Spirit. Meaning the spirit part of the... Trinity, not by Jesus. Yes. Okay. Well, they're also visited by him. Mm -hmm. You know, and you get things like Doubting Thomas and such. Um, but <laughs> the usually the iconography shows these little flames above their heads, right? Essentially, they get visited by divine inspiration. So yeah, the Holy Spirit is the third part of God, but also okay. the sense that they're invested with divine inspiration. I don't really have another word for that. And we're talking a little sort of divine breath, right? Inspiration. Um and so they are, so they have these sort of this revelation together, the sort of communal revelatory experience. Um, and so that is what, for Christianity, mm -hmm. that is what Pentecost now celebrates, right? It's essentially the new word of God. So the Ten Commandments were sort of the old word given to Moses. And this is sort of the new version of that, the updating, as you might say, um, given to the apostles. Whereas, of course, Jews continue to celebrate the Ten Commandments with like, Milk and stuff. Oh, dairy, dairy products. Sweet that dairy seems... products for some reason. Okay, because the milk of there's a lot of discussion. I remember um, a scribe, a Torah scribe, saying in a video that I must have watched years ago, um, thinking of the ink with which you write the Torah as something like um, milk or honey. <laughs> huh. Right. Like I know there's a connection in Judaism between honey and books or like learning knowledge. Yes, the sweetness, but of knowledge. like milk. And it it just seems like a weird, like the, you know, the golden calf um, story. Well, once again, it's fertility. It feels like. Right. Okay. Yeah. But I think it's, it's sort of fertility again, right? That you're given. I mean, like the Ten Commandments are a big step in Judaism as a religion, sort of, because, I don't know, it's like the the beginning of what you could think of it as like an organized thing, if you're reading, if you're reading along in the, in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, Instead of just God speaking directly to whoever, Abraham or Joseph, and saying, go over there, do this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I, I always assumed, like, the land of milk and honey, right? That there's this sense of the fertility, mm-hmm. but also sort of the sweetness, the life-giving, right? This is life-giving it is sweet, right? So there are these sort of continual connections in Judaism. Judaism, of course, much closer to paganism, right? In, in the sense that we see these traditions as colliding, Judaism, of course, makes tremendous use of things from paganism because it is putting itself apart from those things, but, of course, still incorporating, right? right? Christianity being the next step, all of these symbols tend to be slightly further back or buried a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. They're still there, but they're a little further away. Right. Um, but anyway, but yeah. So blood libel. Yes. So Which was... Yes, so leaving... A, if I recall... <laughs> leaving Shavuos this, and Pentecost. Yes. Um, and the reason that for some reason we celebrate with um, sweet things. Um, the idea that during Passover, this becomes this really happens during the middle ages right late medieval mm-hmm. not um is you know i mean there's a history from early to late there's a huge history it happens even sort of late antiquity as a lot of these traditions are getting off the ground um but the real sense that we use this in right really starts during the middle ages and it's because of the knowledge that passover right to what we now, right, to Jews, of course, Shavuos, and for Christianity, Easter to Pentecost, um, Shavuos and Pentecost again being the same, that these are deeply connected. Of course, that's where the holidays of Christianity mm-hmm. come from, quite literally. And so, um, the essentially always, um, a nervous tension for Christianity about the ways in which it is still rooted in Judaism and the extent to which this is, has become a problem because as paganism, meaning non-Judaism and non-Christianity, sort of disappears and Islam is still kind of far away. <laughs> Not, of course, for Spain, but for large chunks of Europe. That Judaism, of course, is sort of the other in the midst um, so this is something we started a little bit on the plague episode, that there are pogroms frequently against Jews if there's a fear that the plague is coming, and the ways in which um, there were people who tried to sort of stop it or protect the Jews, but also, of course, frequently that does not matter at all. Um, and one of the things around Passover, um, of course, because Jesus takes the Seder and says, right, this is my body, this is my blood. And so, retrospectively, Christians looking at Jews think that blood is necessary for the Jewish Passover ritual. It, of course, is not. Right. Wine is necessary. But the idea is that blood is necessary and that the blood of Christians must be the best. This is really an inversion of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Christianity does use blood in Easter. It is, of course, transubstantiated. Sim- Why? Symbolically. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it is supposed to be literal. And something we'll talk about in the future is the ways in which um, there occasionally people have visions of, right, sort of actual bloody meat in place of the communion bowl or someone is sort of um, takes communion when they had not truly absolved their sins and then they like actually taste the blood, you know, so... There's a real sense in which this is supposed to be true, mm-hmm. particularly once transubstantiation becomes um, orthodoxy, which it is not until the middle of the Middle Ages. I should actually, this is something, again, we'll talk about in the future, <laughs> but um, in 1215, that becomes orthodoxy and that's it. 
Um, but before that isn't necessarily. There's a huge argument wow. up until 1215 about whether or not it's tr- truly. So that's a lot of Christianity before that, yes. you know, a lot under the... Even priests getting married and all of that, yeah, happens before we get to actual transubstantiation. Um, yeah, it's the Fourth Lateran Council. Hmm. And there's essentially um, this sense that Christians, right, do have this sort of belief in blood. Um, and even before transubstantiation becomes complete orthodoxy, of course, that's still symbolic. So the sense of um, blood is necessary somehow to pass over because it's such an invested part of Easter takes these various forms. The one that really becomes the most common is the idea that uh, the bread, what is, of course, the communion bread, but in the Seder is matzah, mm-hmm. that Jews need blood, preferably Christian blood, to create matzah. Which one wonders, like, anybody who has ever tasted matzah, it obviously does not have any ingredients in it, except for flour. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Well, yes. But the idea is um, also because this also happens in the Middle Ages, it is decided by the powers that be. We're back to the idea of hierarchy. That not everyone needs to have both the bread and the wine during communion. Oh. Now, the ordinary medieval person might only take communion once a year. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that they just didn't go to services that frequently? or Well, you were supposed to go, but you wouldn't necessarily get communion. Okay. It wasn't considered, right? You didn't get it that kind You'd have it, you know, once you're like, you know, before sort of the Easter season, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's certain times of year you'd have it. Now... Part of it actually is about access. <laughs> um, you know, good bread, the type that you make communion bread out of, is expensive. Good wine is expensive. The hierarchy of the church and so on don't want to be spending all this every week on the masses. And so um, a bell is rung at the moment of transubstantiation, and priests start to complain that people might be off wandering around and doing whatever, talking. And the moment the bell is rung, everyone comes running to see the moment of transubstantiation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, because, But the seeing it, eventually the Middle Ages is like, you know what? Seeing it is basically as good as actually taking communion. You know, see it and you're good. Okay. Now, in the rare occasion you do take communion, because occasionally we have to let you do it, um, you know, we'll pay for enough bread for the whole congregation every now and then. But all you need is the bread. Because the bread complains, contains both species, the blood and the body. The wine also contains both species, both the blood and the body. So you can have either one or the other. And of mm. course, you'll actually just get the bread because the priests don't want you drinking all their wine. Also, then you get your germs all over their cup. They didn't have germ theory, obviously, but, you know, they still have sort of whatever the medieval equivalent <laughs> is of commoner cooties, right? <laughs> right? They still have these ideas. Okay. I'm being slightly unfair here, but also not exactly unfair, because there is a clear sort of class hierarchy in the sense of who gets what. You know, you only get to see it, that's enough. (laughs) Um, Well, occasionally you can have communion, but only the bread, right? But they do this by saying, well, you have both. So the idea that the bread contains also blood, you see, makes sense. Yeah. So the matzah must also need blood. Aha. This is how this makes sense. So that becomes... That's blood libel. The sense that Jews kill Christians to use their blood in matzah, essentially. Um, and so what happens is, then there are pogroms, right? So this is this is really the blood libel, right? That um, Jews are accused, right, of Jewish child or someone might be found dead. Um, who knows who murdered them, right? Probably, as per usual, a family member or whoever. 
but the, it will be an excuse for pogrom against the Jews. Um, related to that, of course, is the idea of ritual murder. It's not the same, but it's related. And this is another path that this can take, right? So the idea that um, you might find a body and it's been... So we take it, this is why we had our whole Francis conversation. Um, you will notice that, like, the hands have been stabbed, mm -hmm. right? The feet have been stabbed. They've been slashed in the side. We didn't mention that when Jesus is on the cross, um, after he dies, Longinus, Roman soldier, to check him, pokes his <laughs> um, spear uh, yes. into his side. Blood gushes out, possibly blood and water. Anyway. It's a holy spear of and he is, Antioch. Yes, and he is, um, no, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I think we've had a Monty Python. Uh, I made it almost all the way. Flip okay. there. No. I think it's, yeah, the, it's no, not the holy sorry. hand grenade of Antioch, I believe. Yeah. It's, yes. But I thought um, Antioch played a role somewhere that they had made a reference. Anyway. Um, no. This is possible. But yes. But the Spear of Longinus, he um, essentially, <laughs> he's, you know, sort of blessed and baptized and okay. Anyway. So that's a whole other side. But, um, so, right, so you might find something like this, and you'll say, aha, right, ritual murder. This person has been ritually sacrificed, which proves that they were harvesting his blood to be used for the Passover, for the matzah. Oh. Now, of course, a ritual murder in that sense would never be done by Jews, because Jews right. don't believe in Christ and would not see that as a ritual worth recreating. Um... But, of course, Christianity, again, the idea that most of these sort of um, slanders, you know, and sort of violent myths about mm -hmm. Jews are really inversions of Christianity that are themselves the creation of tensions within Christianity about what is orthodox and what isn't. Um, and one of the things about transubstation not being orthodox necessarily for so long um, is that the tension between the people who sort of really do believe and the people who maybe don't Right, these camps are sort of fighting against each other. <laughs> um, and so things like, well, Jews would kill someone like Christ to harvest that person's blood to use proves that blood is necessary and it has to be real blood. Right? Um, because that is a foundational part of this story is the use of actual blood. Which, of course, it's not. <laughs> but, you know, that idea. Um and so that sense of ritual murder, and there are a lot of sort of plays, and there are stories, and there are legends about people who are supposedly ritually murdered by Jews to recreate the murder of Christ, which again, of course, is completely not true. Um, the murder isn't always even tied to blood libel, right? But frequently is. But obviously, again, it's a sort of inversion of Christian tension. The final aspect of that is host desecration, um, which is the idea that Jews would try to steal the communion wafer after it had been transubstantiated and would then do things like stab it to see if it bled. <laughs> this is again, obviously something that Jews would not do. It is something right. that Christians were worried about. Do they, they don't keep a big supply of transubstantiated wafer. Like they only do it during the mass, right? No. So usually there's a Christian in the story who's bad, oh. who is bribed to. So it's, they provide it. it. Yes. Okay. Like, they'll keep it in their mouths oh. and they'll spit it out in their pocket or something like this. Right. And then the Christian is usually punished as well, but not, of course, as badly. But the sense there, of course, is similarly, right, Christian tension over whether or not transubstantiation is real. Right? So if Jews want to take a host and stab it, and then, oh my gosh, it bleeds, right? And again, their plays and stuff we'll probably talk about in the future. But if Jews are 
interested in doing that. It's a way of sort of proving that transubstantiation is real. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's another way of sort of working with that tension within the Christian community about whether or not these things are real um, or what it means to test it. Yeah. Uh, but that's so... Oh, but a lot of these things um, definitely could result in pogroms. The uh, even sort of um, rumors of host desecration could, of course, result in pogrom. But obviously, 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 mm-hmm. ritual murder, accusations of ritual murder and blood libel um, did frequently result in pogroms. So those and the, that's the ways in which those are tied to Easter um, because of that sense of blood sacrifice and how closely tied to Passover is that part of the story, right? Um, and so, yes, that is a huge problem. And again, right, that Francis is essentially, right, saying he doesn't, of course, address anything like this at all, but in as much as his, you know, sainthood and the fact that the bestowal of the stigmata upon Francis um, is is um, acknowledged by the church, <laughs> Um, Francis's persona essentially says, right, um, these things are given to you or um, signifiers of purity. Blood libel, host desecration, um, ritual murder. These things are, of course, (laughs) an inversion of that idea, right? So that for someone to receive these wounds is not, in fact, a sign of purity, but a sign of violence from an external force, right? Which is part of that tension. Do you really believe that someone could be pure enough to receive these wounds? Um, do you do you believe this is real? Right? And so the sort of tensions within the community, within the Christian community, being blamed on, on the Jewish community, essentially. Interesting. Because, so that, yeah. There's been a lot of modern controversy about this as well, of course. Then they can um, shift the... Uh yeah, shifting the blame for these issues to a nearby other. It's definitely something that just yeah. happens over and over exactly. again. Mm-hmm. And that's not only, I mean, is that absolutely what happens, but also something that travels all the way to the modern era, um, where Jews are frequently, as with any other, I mean, capital O, other, mm-hmm. right? The other is frequently a place where issues that are actually being contested internally are placed, Right. Um, but Jews have frequently taken that role and to this day take that role, particularly in the U.S. It's reached a different sort of interesting landmark. But this is one that actually goes back all the way through the Middle Ages. The idea that Jews are on some level, not just the other, but the invisible enemy. Right? And this is where clothing restrictions for Jews come from, which also go all the way back to the Middle Ages, long before the Yellow Star. Right, um, That was that was old hat. I mean, Jews have been forced to wear things like yellow badges, usually a circle or something, but um, for, mm. you know, centuries at that point, in various places at various times. But the idea that Jews have to be marked, because otherwise they might hide in plain sight. Right? That that's where all the stereotypes about the nose and, you know, the horns or the tail or where all these things come from. Because that sense that if you don't believe that they look different, you will realize that they could sort of disappear among you. So so they have to be marked. You have to mark. I know that I think a lot of the various or, ultra-Orthodox Hasidic movements trace their style of dress to like the sort of 
rent late. Also, the oh, really? That early? I thought I thought it was more recent, like sort of. Well, the style of dress, the, sh- the current style of dress is more recent. The Strimmel and the black yeah. and whatever. That this is at this point an intentional appropriation of something that was originally forced upon them. That, sort of that they've said. There's actually some interesting stuff. The modern Hasidic movement does start in the Middle Ages, and at the time, it's um, it's revolutionary. It's this huge democratic movement that is related to the original rabbinic heresy, mm-hmm. right? By the time we get through the Middle Ages, of course, that's what Judaism is, rabbis. Um, but the Hasidic movement sort of revolutionizes that even more to the point that the sense is, right, basically everyone has equal access. So there's a leader who's important mm-hmm. and you follow that leader, but everyone kind of has equal access. Now, the problem is kind of um, the ways in which that develops as sort of calcifies, ossifies, um, leads them ultimately to now be the most conservative <laughs> movement. Right. However, um, at the time it was sort of the opposite, right? Um, and they... Now, but also sort of historically, they're not just a Hasidic movement, but there were lots of movements, lots among the Jews, lots of people, who also did feel that Jews should stand out because, you know, various reasons. But you should be proud. You should be willing to acknowledge who you were and willing to die for it if that's what it meant. Um, that assimilation, right? So there are people mm-hmm. on both sides. Assimilation is bad. Right. For various reasons. But... You know, so yes, there are people on both sides who agreed you should look different, you should dress differently, that all of those things. And that is kind of where, yes, the Hasidic movement today keeps itself. Yes, we do proudly set ourselves apart and mark ourselves, mm-hmm. but that is something that has historically been true. And it is one of those interesting things, because of course, yes, you do see, you of course see the Jewish side. Yes, we are proud to stand apart. Um, but at the same time, the extent to which Jewish law really does require, you know, if you follow it, right, that you dress differently from the way most Christians have for the past couple thousand years, it is noticeable, right, um, that you sort of can't assimilate fully. And yet that was always the fear, really on both sides, right? Um, you know, the Jewish sort of congregations didn't want to lose people. Mm-hmm. You know, which, of course, pogroms, that's a big sort of motivator to maybe assimilate and disappear into Christian society. But at the same time, right, of course, Christian society wants to make sure the other doesn't assimilate. Um, This is modern white supremacy, of course, why Judaism is really at the heart of modern white supremacy. Because the idea is that, of course, not all Jews are white. This is something we should point out 100%. Lots of Jews are not white. Right. But... Especially when you're talking about the early story of... Jesus, you know, the oh, of Eastern, course. probably. Oh, there's some brilliant recreations of what he probably looked like. Yeah, yes. he's from the Middle East. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, Jews from the Middle East today are also not white. Yeah. Um, there, of course, are African Jews, African-American Jews. I mean, they're Jews everywhere, mm-hmm. right? They're Chinese Jews, everything. But um, essentially, the idea that, that the idea that Jews are white, right, which in the U.S., um, of course, Ashkenazi Jews are sort of the most famous aspect of modern Jewish life tend to be. They are not, but they tend to be frequently white. Um, so what white supremacy feels, right, that you have to eliminate Jews so that you can recognize your enemy. Right? And of course, Jews who aren't white, 
you'll be able to recognize them because they're clearly other. Right. You gotta eliminate all white Jews, right? And then you, then you'll be able to recognize your enemy. Um, and that that is a long-standing millennia-old tradition. And there is um, a great sort of sense. It's one of the things I really like. Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice is phenomenal on so many levels. Um, it is incredibly pessimistic and deals with most forms of prejudice. <laughs> um, so we have homophobia. We, have, of course, have anti-Semitism. We have sexism. We have classism. We have ageism. Uh, we do have um, racism. Have I missed any? I got most of them. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's got most of the isms. It's got most of the isms. And it's sort of incredible the way Shakespeare deals with them, right? Everyone is prejudiced against someone. And that's sort of the point, right? Everyone is prejudiced against someone, and you sort of, the way you see it. Um, and we might have a, depending on sort of, we might have a moment when we talk about um, Portia's suitors before Bassanio, because there's some brilliant, brilliant stuff there. But um, that sense of all of these prejudices, and that even people who aren't prejudiced in this way are prejudiced in that way. Um, and that is sort of the problem with humanity overall. <laughs> um, and of course, Jessica, right, a name that Shakespeare created, presumably, um, which is a derivation of the Jewish name, Jesse, Yeshai, who is, of course, the father of David, right? And Jesus has to be of the, that tree. Mm -hmm. That's the Messiah, right? Um, so that aspect of um, Jessica wants to marry this guy who's Christian and convert, and she thinks she will be sort of taken into Christian society. And you can tell that Lorenzo knows that that is not what's going to happen. And there's some sort of brilliant scenes where people aren't really talking to Jessica. And Lorenzo is kind of there for her in interesting ways. Um, he himself is racist. And of course, he's basically anti-Semitic. But not entirely in the sense that he absolutely values her mm -hmm. as a person. So also, therefore, not really sexist. <laughs> Good for him. Um, but... That way in which he clearly is prepared for what's going to happen when he marries her in a way that she is not. Right? She thinks it's going to solve everything, and he knows it's not. Because he absolutely knows everyone's still going to be prejudiced against her. Right? Um, and it's sort of very subtle, but there are these interesting scenes, right, where he sort of realized, like, Portia's not really talking to Jessica and, you know, these sorts of moments. Um, and there's something brilliant about that. Right? That, um, that awareness. Right, of the ways that prejudices remain. So you say it's essentially because of someone's religion, but converting doesn't change it. Mm -hmm. And didn't, right? In Shakespeare's time, there were plenty of Jews around. They weren't necessarily supposed to be back in England, but they were certainly there. Queen Elizabeth's doctor was Jewish, famously. Uh, he ends up getting executed, not for being Jewish, but in this case, really for being Spanish. Right? The fear that someone who was Spanish was a traitor. The problem is most of the, you know, a lot of Jews, I almost said most, that's not necessarily true, but a lot of the Jews in England at the time, of course, were from Spain because they'd fled, right? Um, and the idea that there was more of the fear in that instance of them being Spanish than of them being Jewish, right? That Spain, their possible loyalty to Spain was still the primary. But of course, that that's the same idea, right? Um, so the idea that Jews are sort of more loyal to Israel, right, than to, for example, than to the U.S., that is that fear, right, of the other that manifests in different ways. And so this is something Shakespeare would be aware of, right? To convert doesn't necessarily matter. Um, to try and prove your loyalty to this doesn't necessarily matter. Because you're still always seen as tainted by that mm -hmm. other thing, 
right? Um, and conversion, of course, a lot of the Jews in England also would have been conversos, right? Um, so they had converted. Had they truly converted? Were they still practicing in private? Right. The crypto All of Jew. these fears. Yeah. Yeah. So all of those things are really, really still with us. Okay. So that's the dark side. Yes. Yes. I'm trying to think of something else happy to say about, <laughs> about Easter. Chocolate? Um, no. Um, chocolate's great. Chocolate is a yes. new world product. So obviously, uh, yeah. we didn't have it during it the Middle Ages. Originally. Yeah. <laughs> nope. So that is one advantage over uh, the Middle Ages that modern Easter has. <laughs> this is we true. can have chocolate. Yes. Yes. Um, That's as yeah. cheerful as I said. <laughs> the ritual, of course, of Easter um, is extraordinary, as is the ritual of Passover. Both of these holidays are just really astonishing, astonishing liturgical events Yes, <laughs> um, in the year for both, you know, for any religion that celebrates them. Um, gorgeous music <laughs> on both sides. Yes. Um, just tremendous, you know, but a tremendous, a tremendous sense of ritual. And speaking of pagans, I mean, although none of it is attributable immediately to a specific pagan goddess like Easter or to any specific sort of, you know, pre-Judeo religion, um, of course, so much of the underlying sensibility is, is pagan in the sense that it comes before either Judaism mm-hmm. or Christianity. Absolutely. A, a continuation yeah. of themes that have been in play for thousands yes. and thousands of years. Yes, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Well, I think we had probably better wind this up. This is a yes. beast of an episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have to summarize what we learned, which is honestly a daunting task today. But I will say that we have learned that probably Easter, not a pagan goddess. Sadly. That, you know... We have talked about many ways in which Easter and Passover are interconnected um, and the ways in which this type anti-type theory, which is something they make you learn about in every English class you ever take, which is, um, I can't believe we didn't define this earlier, that the the things that happen in the Bible are then, in the Old Testament, are then fulfilled by things that happen in the New Testament. So that yes. the tree of knowledge of good and evil becomes the tree of life, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of connections that we can see there. Or the tree of life that we weren't allowed to touch. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is recreated for us. And uh, Mary was a very popular name. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> yes, that too. Yes. Yes. All Marys all the time in the Bible. <laughs> all Marys. Yeah. All right. But, you know, Miriam and Passover. It's yes. related. Same. Yes basic name mm-hmm. it's true so i think we had better call it quits i mean mary was probably a miriam sorry no yes good <laughs> and well we hope you enjoyed this episode if you stuck with us through the whole thing and uh until next time keep it medieval ask a medievalist is a production of this can't be that hard studios and is not endorsed acknowledged or condoned by virginia commonwealth university or any of its constituent departments our theme music is veni veni venias from carmina burana by carl orff performed by the mit concert choir and licensed under a creative commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0 if you enjoyed our podcast please rate us and leave a review on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Also, why not tell a friend? 
For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com.